Hello, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent. You're with my co-host, Sean Sheetham. You can find us and other podcasts at reformedpodcast.com. Also, check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. And if you would like to support our ministry, you can do so through Patreon. We have three different tiers right now that allow you to support us. You can visit us at patreon.com forward slash theparticularbaptist. Um, and for those of you who are watching on Instagram, um, this is kind of a, a test run, so we'll see how this goes. Um, my goal is to try and integrate this into our StreamYard stream at some point once I figure that out, but uh, we'll see how this runs today. Uh, so you might not be able to hear Sean or the video we're playing, but uh, we'll at least uh, test this out. But anyways, um, today we're going to be dealing with Mr. Anley Stanley. Some of you probably, most of you probably know who he is at this point. Um, he kind of got put on the map. I don't know. How long was that, Sean? A couple years ago where he said the thing about unhitching the Old Testament. Oh, um, I want to say it was. So I wrote a blog post, I believe, about it. At the very least, I wrote a blog post about Andy Stanley. And we only started the blog in 2020. So I imagine it was probably 2020. OK, um, maybe it was from the previous year. Yeah, it was probably a couple of years ago. Yeah. Yeah. But he started toying around with the authority of Scripture and really, I think, the nature of Scripture. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, as as we'll find out, because we're going to play a video from eight years ago. I don't think he just, he just started doing this. Um, this is I was surprised at how old of the video was, because I, I did think it was more of a, a recent thing that he had started doing this. But at the very least, the foundations are there for uh, a while. Yeah, no, you're right. Because, yeah, the video we're going to look at today is from at least eight years ago. And I saw it on Twitter. It started making the rounds. Um, I think it was James White that actually posted someone else's posting of it. And, uh, you know, James White has a huge following. So it probably started making the rounds from there um, based on what I saw. But it, it was a clip that somebody had posted initially. And I started hunting around for the full sermon. I couldn't find the full sermon, but I found about 20 minutes of that sermon. Um, and it's posted on Zondervan's YouTube channel, apparently. Um, so we're going to go through this and, you know, we'll just stop and comment um, where we see fit. Um, but we think that this has some very important things to discuss. Um, I mean, it, it even got Leighton Flowers talking on Twitter about it. And if Leighton Flowers is supporting what Andy Stanley's saying, it's probably not a good sign. Um, so I think this will be a helpful discussion today, especially since this has to do with um, you know, our understanding of Scripture, where we, especially as Reformed Christians, believe our authority, final authority for faith and practice comes from. So we need to make sure that we understand uh, these concepts. So we're going to we're going to dive through this today. But one thing that you'll you'll notice, um, <clears throat> Andy Stanley approaches the text almost purely naturalistically. Um, there's really no supernatural concept now he'll allude to yeah yeah we you know th this is the bible this is you know the sword of god that's not if you were taught that as a kid that's not necessarily wrong but you know for adults it's different essentially for some weird reason so he he, he goes this makes this hard left turn towards a naturalistic understanding of the text um, and then a big premise that he's going to argue from is that the bible was not complete at the time of paul and because it wasn't complete at the time of paul um, he didn't use the New Testament um, as his basis for 
understanding about things about Jesus. He understood it from people who knew Jesus. Um, and so he's going to use that as the basis of his argument um, or that type of argumentation. And that's really what we're going to dive into today. So let's go ahead. Let me pull up our video here. And we'll get right into it. Sometimes right, adults yeah. need okay. a new starting point. In fact, adult, adults often need a brand new starting point for faith. So what we're going to do in this series, what we're going to do for the next few weeks, is we're going to hit the restart button. We're going to hit the re restart button and ask the question, Whoa. what if we didn't know anything, where would we start? What if we'd never heard any of those stories, where would we start? What if we'd never read the Bible, where would we start? What if we'd never gone to church? Where would we start? Where would we start if we were starting all over as adults as it relates to faith and specifically as it relates to the Christian faith? So we're going to. Now, one thing I'll say, he's asking the right questions. Um, as a question, it is important that we understand where do we start as we're coming to the Christian faith? You know, how do we how do we understand from an epistemological standpoint? How do we understand these things that we claim to believe? So he's asking the right questions, but as we'll see, his conclusions are woefully off. See, for me, it's a little weird to ask if we had to start out. Well, I don't know. Having Maybe to the, the, rest... the framing of the question probably isn't good, but yeah. I think that the, the, the premise of it in terms of where do we start off with these things, I think is, is the right kind of question to ask. Um. But yeah, I, I don't think the framing of it is very good because he he says, well, what if we didn't have X, Y, and Z, um, which is kind of a hypothetical that will never happen and never did happen. Um, well, but I, I think the epistemological searching, I think, is where I'm getting right. at. No, I definitely agree. <clears throat> we as Christians need to know um, where we start. Absolutely. Yeah. He's going to go in and say like, well, um, over the next couple of weeks, because I think this is like sermon one of six or something. Over the next coming weeks, I want you to rethink your your foundations, essentially. Yeah. Um. Like, I want you to sort of start over. And I, as as Christians, if we're already built on the rock, why why would we want to start over? I agree. We should think about where we we where we've started, definitely. But it's weird because it almost sounds like he's wanting us to 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 truly rethink and like right. you know change our foundations. Yeah. Um. And uh, as we'll see, the foundation he's putting forward isn't a good foundation. No, not at all. Not at all. It, it, yeah, he, the epistemological searching inquiry is good. It's the framing is not good at all in terms of, you know, yeah, we, we don't want to rethink the faith from the ground up, you know, throwing aside everything that we already have. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's already off to a rocky start hit the restart button and we're going to all start over all together and we're going to learn some new things and we're going to hear some challenging things the you're going to hear some things that you've heard before but my hope is that for many of you where there's been a gap where you want to believe you want to be able to reconcile the real world your adult world with your faith that you'll find that they are easily reconcilable but we're going to have to approach this a little bit differently than perhaps you approached it as a child because starting off with faith as a child is very different than starting off with faith as an adult. Now, here's part of the problem. Um, part of the problem. This is was. just pragmatism 101. I mean, well, you know, it didn't work as a kid. So therefore, we now need to rechange the approach now that you're an adult because the real world has come into the picture. 
So I don't think, yeah, I don't think there's a categorical difference between the two. The faith might indeed look a little bit different. Sure. But just looking at this from two opposite poles here, right? Um, I can't remember what atheist it was, but um, some atheist said that as a child, like he lost his pet or whatever and got mad with God um, and concluded (laughs) that if there was a God that was real, he wouldn't have allowed his pet to be lost, right? And so that you could say like, okay, well, that's uh, a child who had some sort of faith, whatever, um, and came into contact with the real world and denied God, right? So um, the faith, I don't think is, is categorically different than the adult saying like, I just, as I lived my life, you know, I, I couldn't accept that God was real or something like that. Um, and then I had another point, but now I don't remember what it was. Um uh, well, we, we can just keep going, but, oh, oh yeah. So uh, I don't think it's categorically different. We're told that we should have faith like children, right? Right. Um, that's yeah, that the, came to mind. Yep. Yeah. That's what the Bible says. Right. So from each end, right. Like, uh, children, they still experience life and will have that suppose, um, the, uh, if you already grant the premise that, you know, well, life hard um, should challenge, like being hard should challenge faith and same thing for kids. But also we're told that as adults, we should have a childlike faith. So mm-hmm. I don't think there is a, a truly a categorical difference between the two. Right. And it could be he might just be taking um, faulty teaching that has been taught to kids and interpreting that as reality you know well this is how it really is Mm -hmm. and therefore when you come to an adulthood that's not how well actually that's not how it is as a kid but then uh, once you come to adulthood that's not how it's supposed to be instead of well how about we reshape how we teach our children the word of god not teach them the bible is merely veggie tales stories and hypothetical you know stories that have come and teach this is the real word of god and here's how to defend it and here's what these things mean from an early age um, then when you do come in contact with the real world, you won't have this alleged problem uh, that Andy Stanley thinks is inherent in teaching our children the word of God. And I mean, in a sense, he is trying to say, well, let's change how we teach the Bible. The only issue is. Yeah, um, just more focus on the adult audience. Well, he also, <laughs> Adults are different. Oh. The uh, um, what he's teaching about the Bible is is wrong. So, oh, yeah, um, he's yeah. Uh, he's he's thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Oh, yeah. Christianity is that when we grew up, we were taught the Bible and that in and of itself is not a problem. But in some ways, the way we were taught the Bible is problematic, because if you grew up in a home like I did or a culture like I did or a Christian tradition like I did, I heard that this was the word of God. And I've always believed that I've heard that it was infallible. and I've always believed that I heard that it was inerrant. There were no mistakes. And I believe that. I heard that it was all inspired from Genesis to maps. That's the way the pastor used to say it. Man, my what a pastor that used to come to our church. From Genesis to maps, from the table of end, you know, the, ta- the con- table of contents all the way to maps, that the whole thing is inspired. And as a child, you say, yes, sir, and yes, ma'am. And, you know, Adam and Eve and Jesus and Noah and Moses and Jesus coming back. It's all equal. It's all in equal terms. But unfortunately, because the Bible was presented to us as a book, which it is not, because it was all presented as as one holistic thing, which it is not, because we never even understood where this came from. It was a house of cards. So all someone had to do was come along and pull away a couple of the pieces, a couple of the foundational pieces, and suddenly the whole thing comes tumbling down. And so we went off to college. 
And we discover that even though it was sacred, it wasn't scientific. And even though, you know, it was something to appreciate, it wasn't necessarily something that was factual. And even though there were stories in here that were inspirational, they weren't necessarily true. And then we experienced life. Oh, yeah. We, it, it's good to teach your children the infallibility of the Bible. But, you know, it's not really true. Yeah, yeah, that that's a blatant contradiction. Because uh, you know, college is the epitome of truth. The academia is the epitome of truth. High criticism is the epitome of truth. Apparently. Well, it was also it was very interesting the flow of his argument because he's he's talking about um, how uh, the Bible is we shouldn't take the Bible as a unit. He was saying right to effect of like, well, it, it wasn't ever meant to be a, a, a collection or whatever. And that's the foundation for his, like, this is the issue, right? We're, we're being taught that it's a unit. But then he goes on to say that there's contradictions, right? right. Things that aren't true. It's like, well, how does, how does the one thing flow from the other, right? Well, the Bible is never meant to be treated as a unit. Are you saying that, but what is, what, what's the logical connection there? I actually, I, I just don't get it, you know? Um, like, it seems to me that, well, the Bible contains factual errors is an independent truth of the fact that initially the bible was written by different men over time so that there were there was a time where it wasn't complete you know it wasn't a a unity right. um uh so i like i don't i don't understand what the logical connection is there um it seems that he's trying to put forward like okay well um the bible has errors in it but i'm going to just tr like sort of talk about I'll talk about the errors, assert them. Then I'll talk about how it's not supposed to be treated as a unit. And me talking about that will help somehow alleviate your fears. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. It, it, it treats the Bible as this disjointed mess. Like there's no, there's no divine plan in terms of its unity. Um, I mean, this argument might work well for the dispensationalist. Yeah. Um, but not, not someone who believes the Bible has one purpose, Jesus Christ, ultimately, and the glory of God and a redemptive plan behind it. Um, it this just treats them as kind of, you know, they're no more than just disjointed Greek literature that you might find in Plato or the, you know, the Iliad or something like that. Just, oh, you know, it, it it's just it's sacred writing, but it's not really anything unique. Mm -hmm. It's it's just as contradictory as you know some other ancient writing might be oh. so yeah it's it's again already we're, we're not even five minutes in and it's already starting off really bad yeah life and there began to be more and more distance and more and more daylight between what we experienced and what we grew up believing and even if you grew up in a home where this book the bible was so revered perhaps you never saw anybody read it a book that you never placed anything on on the coffee table but you never learned to read it yourself. And you went to a church where somebody opened it up week after week, and you knew that what they were saying was important, but you didn't really understand it. And then you went into an environment that didn't respect it. And suddenly, along with your childhood faith, that starting point that seemed so relevant way back then, suddenly it all went away. Yeah, another thing he doesn't take into account in the sermon at all is man's sinful condition and why somebody would be rejecting the Bible and not really understand it. Um, maybe because they're spiritually discerned and they can't because of their sinful state. You know, his anthropology certainly is uh, lacking here. 
Yeah, and I mean, he puts his he puts his finger on an issue. Like, I'm not saying that that's, this isn't an issue that he's a real issue that he's addressing. Oh right? yeah, yeah, yeah. The fact that um, some might teach the Bible is is important, but not teach why or not teach its contents yeah, yeah. very well. Um, but the issue is then to therefore you know explain why the Bible is important and uh, right. teach its it, contents well and uh, show the significance of it. So. But of course, um, you need the Bible to do that. Yeah. And given he doesn't have that starting point, it mm -hmm. you would have to undermine his own premise in order to actually go down that road. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the entire concept of him having church and teaching people on Sunday is an undermining of his premise because he gets that principle from the scriptures in the first place. But whatever, man, whatever. See, here's what I think. And here's where we're going for the next few weeks. And here's where I'm going to challenge you a bit. And here's where there may be some misunderstanding. And here's where you may be tempted to send me an email. So just hang on. The Bible says, in quotes, the Bible says is not an adequate starting point or returning Ooh. point for many adults. Ooh. For many adults, it's not enough for me to say to you, okay, now I'm going to restart your faith. Now the Bible says, you're going to go, okay, I already did that. I already did the Bible says. I grew up with the Bible says, and I know what the Bible says. But let me tell you about my job. Let me tell you about my divorce. Let me tell you about my children. Let me tell you about my unanswered prayer. Andy, if, if we're going to try to restart my faith by starting with the Bible says, the Bible teaches, not interested. It's what I've come to believe in. What we not adequate enough. Well, you know, there's going to be pragmatism coming out here. I'm not interested. Okay, not, well, let's let's create uh, some other means then to, to get you in. Right. No, no, no. Like whether or not man recognizes the truth of the Bible is irrelevant to whether it should be proclaimed as the truth. Right. Right. We, we don't we, tailor it in accordance with yeah. man's desires and man's whims. I mean, that's yeah. We 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 in America live in a constitutional republic, right? If somebody were to, to I, I don't know, like, oh, we should suppress or uh, I'm going to introduce a law suppressing freedom of speech. Right. And I'm like, well, no, the, the Constitution um, guarantees this. The First Amendment guarantees this. And they were to come back like, well, I, like, I'm not starting with the Constitution. I, I don't like it. It's like, well, I mean, I guess I could argue why free speech is good, but it, it's irrelevant. Right. Because. The Constitution right. says it like I'm not going to back off of the Constitution um, because this person doesn't respect it. The Constitution is still, at least theoretically, the law of the land. Right. Right. Um, it, it doesn't matter that the person rejects it or not. Um, you should attempt at that point to explain maybe why. Well, you can say that you don't care about the Bible, but the Bible is still binding on you. Right. Um, you can you can say that. But. Just be like, okay, well, you don't respect the Bible, therefore I'm going to ignore it. No, no, absolutely not. That's um, you're 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 giving in to man's single, sinful inclinations there. Now, what's funny, you find, you know, what we're going through our our study on Dennis Prager. He would never say this, and even in with all the problems that he has, he would recognize that God's law is immutable and it stays the same regardless. It doesn't matter what man says to try and change that. We don't pragmatically change the law of God or the scriptures in order to uh, accommodate what man thinks. Yet we have an evangelical here who's walking around saying that we should be able to adjust our approach because of 
the fallen nature or or because someone is questioning the faith or questioning the starting point so we have to shift gears and, and accommodate uh, where they are it's just it's garbage it's not the approach the apostles use i mean if anything, you would have seen that with Paul when he was confronted with the Jews, right? They kept telling him, stop preaching Christ, stop preaching Christ. He could have changed his approach, but he didn't. They kept preaching Christ. We must obey God rather than men. We can't let men dictate how we preach the scriptures. We have to do it based on the authority of the head of the church, who is Christ. Yeah. And if um if I if I could, yeah. um, I'll read here a little bit from John 6, because if the fear is that well, if I do this, if I if I proclaim the Bible in this way, people are going to walk away. Well, you shouldn't be afraid to let people walk away because Jesus allowed people to walk away, right? Yeah, John chapter 6. Yeah. John chapter 6, starting at verse 60. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murdered it, he said unto them, does this offend you? Uh, what and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I have spoken unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, uh, therefore I said unto you that no man can come to me except it was given unto him of my father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then Jesus said unto the twelve, Will you also go away? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. So Jesus presents a hard truth. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of truths in John 6 that are proclaimed. Um, one of them, though, is that no one can come unless the Father draws them. Uh, mm -hmm. Unless the Father draws them, right? It's a hard truth um, for some to swallow. And Jesus is going to proclaim that message regardless of how it's received. And some of his disciples walk away. Um, but some of his disciples recognize we can't walk away. You're the one that has the words of eternal life. So if I proclaim the Bible and some walk away, but some recognize, hey, the words of eternal life are in here. I need to read it. Then that's good. That's I, I, the fact that some might walk away doesn't change the fact that some might hear and believe. Right. Right. Because the, the true believer, it, you jump forward to several chapters to chapter 10, and Jesus makes it clear that his sheep are going to hear his voice. Mm -hmm. And so there will be, a, there's going to be a weeding out necessarily by the word. As they hear Christ, the sheep will come, but then, you know, those who aren't his sheep are not going to listen and follow. That's just how it works. But that doesn't change the method of getting the message out. We don't change that in order to accommodate the ones who don't hear. Um, and that's what Andy is apparently trying to do. We've come to believe, and the reason we're doing this series is that the Bible says for many adults is not an adequate place to start your faith. It was adequate when you were a child, but it doesn't work as an adult. Doesn't work. But here Hit is pause. the good news, and here is the reassuring so he's he's going to go throughout this uh, this sermon and say like oh well you know I'm not saying your your parents or whoever were wrong to have taught right. you this as an adult but to acknowledge like hey it's not it's not a good starting point for adults um, it might have been good when you were a child but not when you're adult is to basically say 
yeah, when you were when you were a dumb child, it was fine. But now that you've lived in the real, <laughs> you didn't know world, any better. <laughs> we know we know that it's not the good a good starting point. Um, like like I'm sorry, you cannot reconcile those things. Right. If it if it was good for a child, but it's truly not a good starting point for an adult, that means it wasn't actually good for you as a child, right? You were just not smart enough to have realized that it wasn't a good starting point for you. Um, unless you're just willing to say that, uh, unless you're willing to be postmodern and say like, well, you know, you can have multiple sources of truth that right. are contradictory, but are okay. Um, so, yeah. And here's where we're going to go for a few minutes today as we begin, as we start this series called Starting Point. The Bible says was never intended to be the starting point for the Christian faith. The Bible says... So now he moves from it's not adequate for you, so he goes from the subjective to the objective, right? So he's saying this subjectively wasn't good for you, but in reality, this isn't good for anybody. Because this isn't the starting point of the Christian faith, and we shouldn't start there at all. As the Bible teaches, was never intended to be the starting point. That wasn't the starting point when Christianity started. So what we're going to do today and what we're going to do for the next few weeks, and this is going to be fun. You have to put on your thinking cap. If you're a skeptic and you've, you've written off the Bible a long time ago, you might have to think some new thoughts. You might have to reconsider some things. And for those of you who are hoping, that's who I'm really talking to. For those of you who are hoping, I hope I hear something. I hope I learn something that reignites faith, a passionate, almost childlike faith in God. I hope I'm going to hear it. I think today and for the next few weeks, you may be pleasantly surprised. Now, here's the thing. The New Testament, where we get everything we know about Christianity, Jesus, the Apostle Paul, the church, all that, the New Testament wasn't put together for about 350 years after the events of Jesus' life. In other words, in fact, the phrase New Testament, you know, there's the Bible's Old Testament, New Testament. The phrase New Testament doesn't even show up until about 250 A.D. So for 250 years, actually more than that, but we'll be conservative. For the first 250 years of Christianity, nobody can say, well, the New Testament says, because there was no New Testament. Okay, this is, oh, this, this really bothered me. Um use Kruger's book. This is really helpful. Canon Revisited by Michael Kruger. Michael Kruger is president of RTS Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, but he goes through, and I'm going to reference some, uh, and Sean will reference uh, his own stuff as well. Um, but this this silliness about the New Testament not existing, um, you know, for hundreds of years, till hundreds of years after Christ is ridiculous. Um, sure, it wasn't, in the exact, well, I don't have a Bible next to me, but it wasn't in the exact format that we have today, obviously. Um, a lot of that was, you know, like chapter and verse divisions that didn't come till much later, etc. Um, but in terms of it being in the codified bound book that we have today, that of, of course, no one's arguing that it was. But we do believe, and you can find this historically, that uh, there was early church attestation to the authority of books that we find in the New Testament today, especially the Gospels. I think the Gospels and the Epistles of Paul were kind of the uh, the forerunners of New Testament authority. If you go all the way back, uh, you can see like in First Clement, you know, we went through the series on uh, on First Clement. This is like 8095, so first century. Um, so still farther back, even before the 250 years that he's conservatively giving the date of the New Testament. Um, you can see that 
uh, the Clement or whoever the writer of First Clement was, was seeing um, at least some of Paul's writings accepted as authoritative. Okay, so very, very early on, you can see this to page 213 of Kruger's book. Uh, we can even see the Gospel of Mark as being authoritative if you look at the early church father Papias. And I think Papias was even known to have possibly known the Apostle John. And this is second century, and he's writing, you know, about AD 25. You can find this on page 220 and 221 of Kruger's book. And then if you look at Irenaeus, who was writing in the late second century, uh, you see, um, you know, he calls the four Gospels and other works uh, scripture. This is from page 228 of Kruger's book. So you can see very, very early on, even before 250 years have passed in the early church, there's already an understanding that certain books are being recognized as authoritative. They're these uh, the, the church is hearing the voice of the shepherd and recognizing the voice of the shepherd and seeing these books as authoritative. And when we say authoritative, we're not just saying, you know, they have some sort of, you know, traditional authority merely, but they're seeing them as scripture. They have the same authority of the, as the Old Testament. Um, so th this idea um, is really a high critical idea. And I think it might come from, you know, there are those who will say that, the New Testament canon wasn't established till like Athanasius is Easter letter or something like that, which was would have been like the fourth century. Um, but you, know, you can see very clearly that very, very early on, we're seeing early attestation to New Testament books being seen uh, as authoritative. So um, speaking of uh, Irenaeus, I want to uh, do, a, do a quote from him. And this is um, about 180 AD. So yeah, very much before. Andy Stanley's conservative estimate <laughs> of uh, 250 years. Um, if, therefore, even in the New Testament, the apostles are found granting certain precepts in consideration of human infirmity because of the incontinence of some, and then the, the quotation goes on, but you've, you've already gotten the point, right? It says, in the New Testament, and it talks about the apostles doing things, right? So this is clearly a the word New Testament yeah, the is word. already used to reference what we would call the new testament and andy stanley literally just said the new testament as a term did, wasn't used exactly until 250 years later exactly um and then i'm going to uh quote from melito of sardis and this is about 170 ad i accordingly proceed to the east and went to the very spot where the things in question were preached and took place and having made myself accurately acquainted with the books of the old testament I have set them down below and herewith send you a list. So he, he's specifically saying the Old Testament. Why does he use that phraseology? Well, because there's a New Testament, right? And that actually um, gets to an interesting point, right? Just because we don't see the word New Testament used in whatever survives from that era um, doesn't mean that they weren't using it. Because here... Melito isn't using the word, but he's giving indication that, no, there's an idea of a New Testament because we have a word Old Testament that you would only contrast from a New Testament, right? Right. Um, so there's no way to know exactly when the term New Testament came into existence. The apostles could have coined it, and we just don't have any surviving writing that no, uh, that uses it. You wouldn't be able to know. Um, so... The, the logical basis of this is like, like oh, well, they didn't coin it. How do, you, how do you know when it was coined? You don't know. Um, 
just because we don't have record of the word being used doesn't mean that it didn't exist prior to that or the term. Um, but let's uh, let's take worst case scenario, right? Let's let's envision a world where um, the Bible was never bound into one book until let's say a decade ago, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, would that change the authority of anything in it, right? Because he's he's saying, oh well, you know, it didn't happen until like 350 years afterwards. Okay, well, you can push it as far forward as you want. Like, it could have happened last year. Before last year, everybody always had the books of the Bible independently, never bound into one book, never called the New Testament. Would that change the authority of any of it? Would that change that this these scriptures, the scriptures, which is a biblical term, the scriptures, mm-hmm. um, are um, the foundation of Christian's faith? No, no, it wouldn't change it at all. No. So. It's it's irrelevant, even if we were to take a, a, a stronger version of his argument. Um, it's a red it's herring. Irrelevant. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't matter. Either yeah. the Bible teaches that it is the infallible word of God, and it does, um, and that we are to base our faith on it, or not. Yeah, so that's that's really that's really what the the argument is about. Yep. Um, and I'll I'll just I'll throw one verse out here, although there are many and we can uh, well, I guess it's two verses, but um, uh, we can discuss all that. Uh, and I, I like this one specifically because it deals with the resurrection, which ultimately Andy Stanley wants to uh, to put the basis of his faith mm-hmm. on. This is Matthew 22, verse 31 and 32. But as the touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So here Jesus is um, confronted by the Sadducees who wanted him to prove that there's a resurrection. And well, he says, well, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? The scriptures are speaking to you by God. And you'll note his, his proof for the resurrection isn't, oh, well, you know, wait a little bit and you'll see me do it. It's appealing to the scriptures. That is why they should have believed there was a resurrection. Which spoke of him. Yes, which spoke of him. So That's funny. Well, yep, and we'll see that, I think, very shortly here. Um, Just his neglect, complete neglect of the Old Testament. Um, And it does not help him. Because if you neglect the Old Testament, his position works. If, If you don't, and you see it as authoritative and feeding into the new then you you have to at the very least be cons- inconsistent um and because you can argue very much against this just from the old testament there were a lot of activities there were documents there were letters that paul wrote there were gospels that were written and passed around but for the first 200 really 350 years of christianity hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people became jesus followers but not because the bible said because there was no Bible to say anything. There was an Old Testament, but there were no no New Testament. Christians gathered in churches and they couldn't open their Bibles. Christians gathered in churches with extraordinary faith, faith that would just dwarf us when we think about what they were willing to do and the extent they went to in order to follow Jesus. Many losing their lives for what they believed. So this this is really anachronism, right? So he's reading modern concepts of how the Bible should be back into the into history and saying, well, they wouldn't have done that because it's not what we do today. Uh, this is just anachronism. Um, but he, you know, he's talking about the Old Testament. He almost makes it sound like the Old Testament wasn't relevant to the early church. Yeah. Um, and we, I'm going to quote from 
a famous passage here in a second, but he almost makes it seem like the Old Testament had really no relevance at all to the, yeah. you know, yeah, they had the Old Testament, but, you know, they couldn't they couldn't really reference it. They were just kind of working off of these traditional events that they had, but they weren't really using uh, any kind of authoritative structure. Um, if you look at Second Timothy 3, 14 through 17, this contains a very famous passage, but it's important. Um, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Paul is giving instruction to the pastor Timothy, right? He's giving him instruction on how to lead his church, how to live a, a godly life. Um, but he makes it very clear here that the Old Testament was instrumental in his salvation. The Old Testament was instrumental in him coming to faith in Christ and understanding these concepts about the faith. Yes, no one's saying that the Old Testament reveals absolutely everything about Christ because it's a type. It's a shadow of what's to come. Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament types in revealing and, and fulfilling these prophecies and the sacramental system, etc., or the sacrificial system, um, but it contains this truth that is enough to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, the Old Testament does. So clearly there is an authoritative calling back here that Paul is saying that they um, that Timothy is used. He's to continue in what he has learned and has firmly believed, and he says where, you know, Timothy could do, but where did you learn it? You know, you were taught it as a child, but it came from the Old Testament. So the early church was very much using the Old Testament as authority. And then Paul goes on to declare the famous 2 Timothy 3.16, that Scripture is breathed out by God. And this isn't just a reference to the Old Testament. There are those who will say, well, Paul is only talking about the Old Testament, not the New. Um, but Paul, Paul's point here is that Scripture by nature is breathed out by God, whatever that Scripture is. It's not just the Old Testament. Sure, it's primarily Old Testament in this context, but it's not just the Old Testament. It's not limited to that. It's that scripture as a con as you know in and of itself is breathed out by God and it's profitable for X, Y, and Z. Um, so that was definitely the church's authority back then. Um, so I don't know where Andy is getting this. He, he, again, he has to throw out the Old Testament in order for this to even make any sense. But um, it's very clear from the New Testament itself that the Old Testament was being used as you know an authoritative structure for New Testament teaching. Yeah, and I really want to hit home what you said, right? Because when you read it, the, the scriptures are able to make you wise to salvation. Right. And it doesn't add anything else, right? It's right. Uh, they're able to make you wise uh, plus, you know, arguments about the resurrection, right? Like, no, it's, it's by itself is able to make you wise unto salvation. Right. Um, now, I will acknowledge that in um, the previous letter to Timothy, um, uh, Paul mentions, or he uh, he quotes from uh, Luke's gospel and calls it scripture, right? So he is definitely, while primarily the Old Testament scripture is in mind, he's also probably got at least somewhat of the, well, he's, uh, he's still got the New Testament when he talks about scripture, right? Um, so uh, you could say, well, he's also talking mm -hmm. about New Testament scripture, but I don't think that fundamentally undermines our case against Andy Stanley here, 
um, because Andy Stanley doesn't want to treat either of them as authoritative. Um, he might have uh, explicitly argued about unhitching the Old Testament, but as we'll as we've seen and right. as we'll continue to see in this presentation, he really also unhitches the New Testament for just the resurrection. Um, uh, so we'll, uh, we'll we'll keep going, but um, yeah, right, I, yeah. <laughs> No, this type of stuff is infuriating. <laughs> yeah, I was so angry. Yeah, those first 250 years, the starting point has absolutely nothing to do with a written word or the word of God, as we refer to it, or an inerrant scripture or an infallible New Testament. Liar, liar, liar. That's all that is. Because it didn't oh, it, exist. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. It had nothing to do with a nothing. written word. Right. So, um... <laughs> All right, all right. I'm gonna, I'm gonna. I don't remember. If this Bringing is, the warhammer down here. <laughs> like, where? Oh, where do I have First Corinthians 15? Yes. All right. So, First Corinthians 15. This is Paul's gospel presentation in First Corinthians, right? Oh, yes. Great point. Moreover, yep. brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye received, and wherein ye stand by which also ye are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I received, how Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and mm -hmm. that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of about 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained under this present, uh, but from the, excuse me, but some are falling asleep. You cannot extract the scriptures from the presentation of Christ. Right. right. I agree with you that there are many people that are saved, not because they read the word explicitly, but because they heard it preached. Um, that's, that's Paul's whole point in Romans nine, right? Like faith comes by hearing, hearing becomes the word of God, uh, uh, uh hearing from the word of God. Uh, but he was in the context, he's talking about preaching, right? Like we need to send a preacher. How will they hear if they don't have a preacher? Right. Right. So I agree with you. It's uh, um, the means by which a lot of these people were saved was by the preaching, but it was by the preaching of the word of God, which means the word of God is still authoritative. And ultimately yes. it's the word of God that converts. Right. Right. Um, Romans so, 10. How will they know unless they've heard yeah. a preacher? Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, he, what he's trying to say is, well, they didn't have the word of God in front of them, the written word of God in front of them. Therefore, it's not a They didn't have their Thomas Nelson yeah. AJV in front of them. The word of God, whether it was literally spoken to them audibly by God or it's in written form, it doesn't. There's not a distinction there in terms of authority. It's like, oh, well, right. it got written down, so now it's lost its authority. Um, <laughs> no, that's 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 absurd, right? And I'm not aware. Well, I shouldn't say that, but. When the word of God is preached, um, a lot of times, even in the New Testament, it's um, they're preaching the written word. So uh, you cannot make this distinction like, oh, well, they weren't saved by the written word. No, the written word is integral to the preaching yes. of Christ. You cannot separate it. And that's why Paul explicitly says, hey, when I presented to the, you to the gospel, 
all this was in accordance with the scriptures. Like that's right. part of my gospel presentation. And you what, what did Jesus do? He was in the synagogues. What was he doing? It, teaching them what the scriptures yeah. were saying about him and Paul as well, going to the synagogues, teaching the Jews. We're from the scriptures. This is what you these know. things mean. And we'll, we'll get into it because he attempts to uh, use Acts 17 to overturn this idea, right? And say like, well, Paul doesn't argue from the scriptures but even there i think uh it completely undermines his case but uh we can we can keep going <laughs> keep being tortured so the question is and an important question for us is what was their starting point what was their starting point how did they come to faith in a jesus how did they come to faith in a risen lord how did they come to faith how did they become christians if there was no quote bible that served as the starting point for their faith and today I want to answer preached. that question because right. here's what I believe for some of you, not all of you, but for many of you, for many of us, that their starting point will need to be our starting point. That where they started is where we need to start. And simply saying the Bible says, and therefore you ought to, it may not be an adequate starting point for some of you who are adults, because that's how your faith started as a child. And you saw what life did to your fragile faith based on the scripture as it was presented Nobody meant harm. It's not that your mom and dad were wrong. It's not that your preacher or your pastor was wrong. It's just that they presented something to you as a child the way they would have to present it as a child. And then nobody came along after them to help you restart your faith. Which means they were wrong? As an adult. So here's what we're going to do. Today, <laughs> we're going to listen into a conversation between the Apostle Paul and a group of people that knew nothing about Jesus. They had never even heard of Jesus. This took place about 20 years after the events of Jesus' life. Now, so that you don't you know, argue that I'm using circular reasoning, we're going to read a portion of Scripture from this little document that we call the Book of Acts, but we're not reading the Bible. We're reading a journal. We're reading a travel uh, journal. There was a man named Luke who was a doctor who traveled travel with the Apostle journal. Paul and took notes of everything that happened as Paul moved around the Mediterranean Rim um, creating churches. This was before the book of Matthew, the book of Mark, the book of Luke, probably, and the book of John was even written. There was no New Testament. They couldn't refer to the words of Jesus written. This was Hit a pause. man who knew what he knew because. <sighs> like, yeah, we don't, we don't want to present to you the infallible word of God, but this travel journal, right? That's that's what you should base your faith on. <laughs> like. Not, like, just, and it's it funny, he tries so to qualify it with being like, well, this isn't the Bible. Because he knows if he says this is the Bible, then he's completely yeah. undermined his position. Yeah, well, completely. Uh, let, let me, let me, let me, like, just calling it a travel journal doesn't make it not part of the Bible, right? Like, like, you are still basing what you believe off the Bible. Yeah, sure, Um, it's not... Okay, well, you know what he said, scriptures, I'll go with scriptures, right? If like really he wants to make that hard distinction there, right? You're still basing it off the scriptures. The scriptures are authoritative. It's not a mere travel journal. Like I right. wouldn't even call Acts a travel journal anyway. <laughs> like maybe he uh, Luke had taken some notes while he was going and then yeah. later put it together into the book of Acts. Um I don't I don't know, but I would not call Acts a travel journal. I think he specifically sat down to write. And in fact, you know how I know that you at least can't say that all of it is? Because Luke says, or he starts talking about um, Paul uh, with him, right? And said he, he'll say we, um, uh, somewhere in the middle of Acts. I don't remember when he starts talking about we. And that's when Luke joined with Paul. 
right? Yeah, Luke first, didn't come until later. <laughs> yeah, the first part of Acts, Luke wasn't an eyewitness. Excuse me. Like so, um, this is like to just call that a travel journal is 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 it's blatantly disrespectful to this particular book that's in the Word right. of God. Um, yes, Luke was the author; he wrote it, but it is breathed out by God. It is God speaking. Uh, it is not a mere travel journal. Yep. Because of who he knew. This was a man, the Apostle Paul, who knew what he knew about Jesus, not because of what he read, but because of who he knew. He knew Peter, and he knew John, and he knew James, the brother of Jesus. What he knew about Jesus came from the people he knew because he lived in the lifetime in which they lived before any... Somebody, okay, this is... Somebody said, this makes the Pentateuch a 40-year travel journal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sort of. Basically... <laughs> That that's funny. Oh, that's that's funny. so bad. Um, I'll I'll just say right here, and uh, <laughs> he he's going to allude to the fact that um, Paul had a special revelation of of uh, Jesus Christ a little bit later. But his primary argumentation really does seem to be: Why does Paul know these things? Because he knew the apostles and they told him. That's why he knows these things, right? But that's not true. That is not true. It's not why Paul knows these things. Um, what does he say in Galatians, right? And oh, my notes are a little messy here. I apologize. Uh, Galatians 1, right? Uh, starting at verse 11. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which, I, which was preached to me is not after man, for right. I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then... Um, uh, I could also quote from Galatians 2 here because he also goes into detail about how um, he didn't receive it uh, from the apostles, but I'll, I'll say, uh, for sake of time, I'll, I won't quote that. Point being, Paul, when his, his apostleship is attacked, right? Um, the Judaizers in Galatia are trying to say that, um, well, you know, Paul, like, what about him? He's like, no, I'm an apostle. I didn't get my gospel from any man i didn't get it from the apostles i got it from jesus christ right so uh, going back to what you said earlier that he, he really has a naturalistic view of things right this is a very naturalistic view he's yep. saying oh why, why does paul know these things he knows them because he talked to the apostles no he doesn't know these things because he talked to the apostles he knows them either because he read them in the scriptures or because jesus christ appeared to him and told him right yeah this, this and what about Acts chapter nine from that travel journal, you know, where he met, he talks about yeah. meeting Christ on the road and he knew who he was because he said, who are you, Lord? <laughs> he knows exactly who was talking to him and Christ revealed him, gave him instructions, said, you're going to teach the gospel, to the Gentiles, you're going to do all these things. He knew Jesus personally, not through, you know, the mere teachings of somebody else. Oh, this is really bad. It's really bad. Any of this was documented or written down. In fact, you should know this. The writings of the Apostle Paul predate the writings of the Gospels that he wrote around 53, 54 AD. Nobody disputes that. Everybody believes there was a historical figure named Paul, and everybody believes he wrote epistles, and there's some debate over which ones he didn't, didn't write. But his primary epistles, everybody agrees he wrote, and he wrote these in the early to mid-50s, just really a few years after the events of the Gospel. But he did not learn what he learned about Jesus from the Bible. He learned what he knew about Jesus from the people who knew Jesus. And then one afternoon, he finds himself in Athens, Greece. 
And he's wandering around and he sees something very disturbing and he begins a conversation. I would love to know where he got that specific information. Like, how do you know he sat down and talked to these guys? There's nothing in the text or historically that you can point to that says that, well, Paul got his understanding of these things from uh, from just these mere men. I mean, we have clear supernatural reasons why, but I, I'm just curious where he's coming up with this. If he's just pulling this out of his butt or if he's just, you know, he really got this from some liberal source somewhere or something like that. I don't know. Well, it's like, have you ever read Galatians? Right. <laughs> like, not only do we not have any evidence, um, it's completely contradictory. Right. Um, and he doesn't says, qualify it either. He's just like, this he didn't get apostles. anything about Jesus from, from the Bible. Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, he explicitly says, like, I didn't get this from, from uh, men. And then he goes on to say in chapter two, hey, um, I went up to confirm with them uh, much later what I was preaching was what they were preaching. And they said, yes, we're, we're, we're in agreement here. So yeah. he had been preaching for a while <laughs> before even talking to the apostles. Right. <laughs> And that conversation is recorded for us in this travel journal that eventually became, became part of the New Testament hundreds of years later that we call the Book of Acts. It's not even a book. It's really a document that records what happened in the early church. And specifically this, this seems, and I think Kruger actually, <laughs> Sean's like having a heart attack over there. Um, in Kruger's book, I think he actually addresses this line of thinking because... The way Andy is presenting this makes it seem like the New Testament didn't become authoritative until the church accepted it as such. And I think Kruger addresses this, that the, the scriptures are inherently uh, are inherently authoritative because of where they come from, uh, not based on the church's recognition of it. And that seems to be what what uh, Andy is getting at here. Well, you know, it really wasn't codified until the, you know, much later and then it became something to reference. But before that, it didn't matter. Even if it was written before, it wasn't really relevant until it was codified by the church later. That's what he seems to be getting at here. Specifically, what happened with the Apostle Paul. Now, if you came from church, you know this. The Apostle Paul wasn't always an apostle. He was Saul of Tarsus, who hated Christians, hated him. His career was to stamp out the church, and then he became one. An interesting story. And he didn't become a Christian because he read the Bible. It had not been written. He became a Christian because of something that happened. So we're going to listen was, to this conversation. Uh, I.e. Uh, resurrection. Well, so because of something that happened. Because right? of something that happened. So he, he became a Christian because of something that happened. What is that something that happened? It's Revelation, <laughs> Jesus appearing to him. Right. right. So... Yeah, um, <laughs> which he, interestingly he, enough finds its way into scripture. Yes. <laughs> Conversation. And my goal today is not for you to believe anything is true. My goal for you today is to listen to how someone who knew the people who knew Jesus presented the message of Christianity to a group of people who had never heard any of it before. Because in this conversation, we get to the very center and to the heart. I believe we get to the starting point of the Christian faith. So here we go. While Paul was waiting for them, he was waiting for a couple of his friends in Athens. 
While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, this is the same Athens, Greece that you can visit today. He looks around, and there are idols everywhere. So he reasoned, he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, God-fearing Greeks being Greeks that had become Jewish in the synagogue, as well as, and this is where the story picks up steam, as well as in the marketplace, um, day by day with those who happened to be there. So Paul is walking around. He's just engaging people in conversations about religion. And Athens is full of philosophers, so this wasn't hard to do. So he went to the synagogue, talked to them about what he believed and what he said and what he learned. And then he went out into the marketplace just to engage people in conversations about religion. A group of Epicureans, Epicureans believed, hey, we can't figure it out. Who cares? Just have a nice day and an extra glass of wine. And... Stoic philosophers who said, hey, if you give us enough time, we can figure it all out. We're going to dot all the you know, I's and cross all the T's. He met a group of them who were philosophers, and he began to debate with them. So he finds a group of people that were willing to in- engage with him at a deep level about religion and about philosophy and about ideas. Some of them ask, some of them ask, what is this babbler trying to say? Now, here's why, because they'd never heard any of this before. This was brand new. They were starting from the beginning. Others remarked, I think he's trying to advocate a foreign God. Now, this is a big deal, because if you're going to introduce a new God in Athens, there were so many they couldn't even keep track of them. But if you're going to introduce a new God in Athens, you got to get permission. Because because in the past, in cities like this, somebody came in with a new idea, split the city, and a civil war would begin. It would split families. Houses would burn. It was tragic. So if you're going to introduce a new idea, you have to get permission. They said this because... That seems a little off, but okay. Well, I think it's blatantly contradicted by what the the text says, right? Um, uh, Where is it? In, Uh, In Acts 17? In Acts 17, right? Um, verse, uh, he starts pretty far into the chapter. He doesn't really. Yeah. Well, verse 20 and 21, right. Um, for thou bringest certain strange things to our ears, right. We would know therefore what these things mean yep. for, and verse 21 for all the Athenians and strangers, which were there spent their time in nothing else, but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Right. <laughs> the reason they yeah. want to hear it is, is because like, Oh, we love new things. That's, that's great. You know? Um, yeah, and, so they weren't actually going to throw him out necessarily. They want to hear Paul. <laughs> yeah, um, and you'll know I quoted from verse twenty-one there, right? Yeah. Um, for those that are you, of you that are able to watch um, on screen, he's going through and he has the uh, Bible quotations up on there. Mm-hmm. Note that he goes from twenty to twenty-two because I, I noticed this, right? You know, he, I didn't pick that up. Yeah, uh, yeah, because he has one verse at a time as he's preaching, right? And yeah, it'll yeah. be twenty. And then there will be 22. He misses 21, which would contradict his point. I think very interesting. Yeah, yeah. And this is why you preach (laughs) expositionally going verse by verse. Uh, Because I I guarantee, well, I I can't guarantee you, but um, there were, I'm pretty sure there were many people in that that audience that didn't even notice that because they weren't paying attention. Yeah, I didn't even pick up on that. you know, and I'm looking at this, you and I are looking at this with a critical eye, but I didn't even pick up on that. He skipped those verses like or skipped yeah. that one verse like that. Yeah, because you're right. That undermines that because he's saying that there is going to be this conflict, but that clearly contradicts that they want to hear new things. That's their job. That's what they want. This seems like a new religion. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus in the resurrection. Now, again. 
Everything Paul knew about Jesus came from goes. people who knew Jesus. The resurrection. Nope. Everything Paul believed about the resurrection came from people who saw a risen Jesus. Uh, no. He read no. anything. Gospel was, was revealed to, to him supernaturally. At this point in history. Then they took him. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this, here it is, new teaching is that you are presenting. In other words, hey, this is new. We Even here in verse 19, you see this reception of new teaching. Like they're like, hey, tell us, man. You know, we're not going to th throw you out. We're not putting the blinders on completely. You know, we're tell us. Let's let's hash this out. I want you to start from the beginning and explain it to us. We've never heard any of this before. Now, here's an interesting thing. You can actually visit this place. Here it is. This is um, the Areopagus was actually what it means is the Hill of Ares, I think, or the, yeah, the Hill of Ares. And supposedly in Greek mythology, this is where Ares was put on trial by the gods for murdering Poseidon's son or Poseidon's brother. I think it was Poseidon's brother. Was Poseidon's son, excuse me. So this was a really important place. You can visit it today. And this is pretty cool when you visit Greece or when you visit Athens. You can stand where the apostle Paul stood. Now, the reason I make such a big deal out of this is what I'm telling you today is not a Bible story. There's no Bible yet, remember. <laughs> this is something that happened. This is where this it was hard contradictory. The reason they took him there is both a Bible deal. story and something that happened. Right. Like, like, like okay, well, it wasn't uh I think there's a little bit of an echo there, Dan. You might want to turn one of oh, the, okay. the mics off. Um like it can be both just because there's a gap between when it happened and when it was written down doesn't mean, oh, well, you know, the Bible can't be the word of God. It can't be the authoritative starting point for for me. Right. Like you could you could whittle down the Bible to a couple core elements and I be, could be saved uh, from it. Right. Like I don't need the entirety of the revelation um, in order to be saved. Right. And in fact, when a lot of people are saved, they haven't read read, um, read the entire Bible. Right. Um, that doesn't mean that, therefore, okay, well, only these core elements are authoritative as a starting point. No, all of it is. Um, all of it is authoritative. I can start from all of it. And um, at the very least, you have to say the core points are definitely a starting point. But, you know. Uh place in the middle of Athens was considered a place of judgment. This is where they had civil trials. This is where they made decisions. If they were going to enter the, do something new to the city, this is where the city council would meet and make that decision. So they actually took the Apostle Paul to this very spot to decide whether or not they were going to allow him to spread this brand new idea that no one in Athens had heard about before. Okay? He continues. Or the story continues. <clears throat> You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears. Never heard this before. You're bringing some strange ideas to us, and we would like to know what they mean. So, would you please, for our benefit, and for the benefit of the city council and the elders of the city, would you start from the beginning? Hit pause. With this. So here I did, uh, I read on Wikipedia, so it was Wikipedia, don't, don't take it as fact, but... I'm also not sure that this is in the context of the city council. Um, the, the claim was made that at that point in time, the Areopagus might not have, I think it was that it might not have referred to the, just the city council it might have been like the greater area or something. Um, so this would be another thing where he's allowing some sort of context to influence how we should interpret the text. He might be right. He might be right. So I, I'm not going to go definitively on that, but it sounded strange to my ears and I started to look it up prior to the podcast 
Um, so it, it might not also be quite accurate the way he's describing it here. Mm, yeah, would not surprise me. Here we go. Here's about 20 years after Jesus. Somebody explained to people who knew nothing, the whole story. This was their starting point. Paul then stood, stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, it people of heavens, I see that you are in every way. You'll note we're on verse 22. Yep, he skipped the, last, the verse. The last <laughs> verse is 20. Um, like, I don't know what to say about that. He's going through every other single part. Why did he right. use verse 21? I have yeah. to ask. Hmm. Suspicion. Um, while we're here, I will just mention in passing, he'll make a little bit of the term religious. I know this is a, a word that's disputed, and I'm not going to get into the entire dispute here. The KJV renders it with a negative connotation. It renders it as superstitious. Um, I think only like one modern Bible renders it that way. Um, but I would I would also question whether or not um, this word should have a, a positive connotation, whether he's, he's complimenting them or he's got... A, um, a little bit of a negative connotation, because from my understanding, the word is almost always used in a negative context. But mm. I, 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 I remember listening to a, a, something about it a long time ago, and I don't remember exactly. But um, just just to throw that out there. Anyway, I see that in every way you are very religious. For, he goes on, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Oh, stage now, props. This is interesting. So we've got altars all over the city to all these different gods, trying to keep them straight, all these deities. And just in case they missed one, this was the just in case altar, just in case they missed one, they actually built an altar to the unknown God. Well, who is this God to? We don't know. But if that God shows up, we can say, oh, we were expecting you. We just didn't know who you were. We just didn't know what name to put on here. Now, what this said to Paul and what he leverages off of is this, and this is true of all religions. There's uncertainty. Here's what I know, but there's a lot I don't know. Here's what I'm sure of, but there's a lot I'm not sure of. Here's what you can expect, but there's a lot of unexpected. And so they it have was. this all for the unknown God. Now, we laugh, but many of you. Yep. It's funny. I've got a I've got a hard stop at uh, ten o'clock, but I keep have to having to <laughs> intervene. Um, is that the impression that you get from reading Acts seventeen? That his his starting point is oh, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's some things I know and some things I don't know. Because it seems to me he's pretty boldly proclaiming the truth, like he believes it to be true. <laughs> right. That he, like I don't I don't get any sense of uncertainty whatsoever. And he even shames the philosophers of the uh, of the the guys that are there, and uses them to his advantage. It seems like he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> <sighs> no, this this was yeah, this is very frustrating, and I uh, this is not an exegesis of the scriptures. No. It's just not. The same way. This is why some people only go to church on Christmas and Easter, just in case. <laughs> I don't know, but just in case. Some of you, you only go to Mass, Christmas and Easter, two or three times a year, and it's like, I don't know, just in case. Some of you have a piece of jewelry, and if something bad happens, you feel like you have to touch it, just in case. Some of you, kind of in your mind, you run through some old verses you learned as a child. We have the sort of just, I don't know how it works, but just in case. So Paul That's says, look, you're very religious. Yeah. <laughs> you want to know what's out there. You know there's something out there bigger than you. You don't know what it is. So he says, and this is a strong English what word. What do you mean you don't know what it is? Language. <laughs> so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. Now, he didn't mean you're dumb ignorant because they're not dumb ignorant. These are philosophers. What he meant is this. You're guessing. 
You're guessing, aren't you? Come on, no. guys. No. <laughs> yeah, we're guessing. No. You're not certain, are you? No, we're not really certain. If we were certain, we wouldn't have that sitting around, right? This means, this means we don't know. Unknown. We don't know. And so then Paul says this, and this, this is so cool, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So come on over here to the altar to the unknown God. I'm about to take the un off of known. I'm about to make known to you something you do not know. Isn't that exciting? And then he begins. The God, he says, the God who made the world, the one God, not the pantheon of Greek gods, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. I'm getting ready to tell you about this unknown God. He is bigger than all the rest of your gods put together. In fact, you can't build a temple for him. He is so big, he couldn't fit. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. In other words, he's saying this. You may find the most fantastic painting in all the world, but you won't find a painter in the painting. You might find the most incredible um, piece of sculpture in the world, but you won't find the one who made the sculpture in the sculpture. You might find the most incredible piece of art in the world, and it may be just so magnificent, but you won't find the creator of the art in the art. And so it is with this world, this big, fantastic, complex world that reflects the glory and the greatness of God. The good news is it reflects his glory and his greatness. The good news is you can discover a lot about God in his creation, but you won't find God in creation. He's too big. Oh, yeah. I, I remember hearing that. The um, basically denying natural uh, revelation there. So, yeah, the, you've got multiple issues. But oh yeah, yeah. I'm I'm probably gonna hold my tongue until the end, just because um, <laughs> I'll, I'll go through um, what he says as a unit, sort of. Big. He won't fit. Don't bother trying to build him a temple, and he certainly couldn't fit on your little itty-bitty altar. He lives in temples, can't live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. He's going, to come on, guys. All your little itty-bitty gods, you take them incense, and you take them some potato where chips. Did he, where did he learn that? Poke out there, and, you know. And you yeah, where did he learn that? Where did, where did he learn Daniel that? chapter 4, Malachi chapter 3, Exodus chapter 3. Yeah, I wonder where that came from. Yeah. Although, um, if you want to say that this is something that's um, revealed um, as part of uh, the revelation that God does to all men, right? The implanted knowledge of God. Even if you, if sure. I don't think Andy Stanley would ever, would ever uh, talk like that. But um, <laughs> if you wanted to, if you wanted to talk like that, well then um, you'd have to, you'd have to have the understanding like, okay, well, if people know that there's a God. Um, they're all, they're all condemned, right? Like I don't need to reason with them as if they're like their own autonomous um, person to reason with. So, yeah. You put some stuff in there and your little piece of gold and silver that the priests just steal. You, you're always trying to bribe your gods as if your gods need something. You're always trying to get your gods to do something for you. You're always trying to do things for your gods and honor your gods. He goes, let me tell you about the unknown God. He doesn't need any of that. This isn't a God that needs anything from you. This is a God that is self-sustaining. This is a God that sustains the universe. He doesn't need anything from you. Look what he says. Rather, he himself gives Everyone life and breath and everything else. Everything that's good that has come into your life, Paul would say, has come from this big, massive creator, God. And right. that is the end of that. So unfortunately, this is where it ends. Um, 
we can't go on to see the rest of his argument, but I, I suspect with what I've seen of Andy Stanley, I, I know where he's going, right? Because ultimately at the end, Paul claims the resurrection, right? And I know from other sources that he wants to base all of his Christianity on the resurrection, not on the Bible. Um, or at least that's how he pr presents it. Right. Um, I, I To preface this, um, I'll say I recently took a class by uh, Dr. Lane Tipton, and he actually went through Acts 17, and I'm very appreciative of his exegesis. Um, so any similarities between the uh, the presentation is because I'm, I'm stealing from him a little bit. Uh, <laughs> but um, when Paul talks about, when he's presenting this to uh, the Greeks here, he's presenting a full-orbed, christian understanding of the world right and one that's rooted in the bible um some of uh, this you i very much agree probably is uh, a result of the implanted knowledge of god that all men you know uh know uh god and his divine mm -hmm. power right uh they don't know everything about god obviously we're we're still learning but um there is some knowledge of god in all men um but that's not all that's being presented here um, specifically, um, give me a moment to locate it again. Um, uh, verse 26, right? Which we didn't get to, so I, I can't see his interpretation of what verse 26 is. Um, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and have determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. So where does this truth come from? This is something that, like, I, I don't believe that it was revealed to Paul um, mm -hmm. by, by supernatural revelation. I don't believe, well, maybe the apostles talked about it uh, to him. I don't, I don't know. But uh, Paul being acquainted with the scriptures would have known this is just what the Bible teaches, right? Right. Um, uh, for example, I, well, uh, it's, it's clear in, um, uh, in, the story of the tower of babel right that's that's it's telling the story but you also have something like deuteronomy 32 8 uh when the most high divided to the nations their inheritance when he separated the sons of adam he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of israel so god is separating the nations and determining their boundaries right that, that comes from the old testament and this goes back to um what i said earlier um that you can't separate the Old Testament, the Bible, from the proclamation of the resurrection. Paul specifically includes this leading up to him talking about the resurrection because this is important background in his preaching to the uh, to the um, Athenians. So, yes, he hasn't quoted a specific, specific Bible verse yet, but at the same time, he's proclaiming biblical truth to them. Are you really going to say, like, oh, well, the Paul— the starting point isn't the Bible for Paul, then why is he using it in this proclamation, right? Um, this is this is biblical truth. But what I really think is interesting and wh where I think he was probably going with this is the, um, is the idea that the resurrection proves something, right? Mm. Um, so uh, starting at verse 30, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone 
by raising him from the dead. And I'll, Andy Stanley was reading the NIV, so I'll just I'll read that from the NIV, but just uh, just verse thirty one here. Um, and that's not the NIV. Where is it? There we go. Um, uh, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So I assume from what I know of Andy Stanley, it's like, see, the resurrection is what proves Christianity to us. And go on to, to talk about that. But what is it specifically that the resurrection proves? According to Paul, it's that it proves that there's a day of judgment coming from uh, coming. How is it that the resurrection proves that the day of judgment is coming? Is it that, oh, well, the fact that there's a resurrection proves that Jesus is God and therefore whatever he says is the truth. And therefore, whatever his apostles coming after him have recorded him of saying, even though I think that might be Aaron, um, uh, that proves yeah. that there's a, a day of judgment. I don't. But, I don't think that's what Paul's getting at, and it makes no sense of everything leading up to this, right? Um, Paul, at this point, has just presented the Christian view of history, right? Leading up to this point, and then says, yes, the resurrection of Christ proves that there's a judgment coming. Why? Well, because the resurrection of Christ, there's there's a couple of reasons, but one I'll, I'll focus on is the resurrection of Christ proves that the time of um, men living in their sin is is coming to an end, right? Like from the beginning of the world up until that point, men just died, right? They just yep. died. Now there's a resurrection indicating that there's going to be um, some, at least some men that, you know, come into glory, come into a state of, um, of well, it indicates that some men are in right relation to God, right? This is what it, it proves. Um, but you need a Christian framework to even to begin to understand why that would prove it, Right. Um, and this is where I'll, I'll, I'll steal directly, directly from Dr. Tipton, right? Because uh, this is sort of how he presented it. Uh, for the Epicureans, right? What do they believe? They believe that uh, they're materialists. Um, they're atomists. They believe that the entire universe is composed of atoms and that these atoms are falling through space. And anytime there's a, a change, um, it's because the atoms have swerved, right? They've swerved out of, um, swerved out of their normal path. Uh, for whatever reason, and now that the changes happen. So if you were to prove the resurrection to an Epicurean, now they are also polytheistic deists, so they don't think God necessarily um, intervenes in the world. But if you were to prove that uh, the resurrection happened to an Epicurean, he would just say like, oh, wow, that's a really big swerve that happened there, right? Because <laughs> he doesn't have a framework for understand. He has his own framework. He doesn't have a right. framework for understanding the significance of the resurrection. And that's the point. The resurrection is meaningless or not meaningless, but you, what is the meaning of it apart from the rest of the revelation of the Bible? What does it mean? You can make up a lot of different meanings. Um, Jesus could have been a wizard, you know, um, there, like there's so many things that it could be. Um, you need the background of it of the uh, the bible to properly understand what it means and i think this i think that andy stanley likes this likes detaching the resurrection from biblical revelation because now he can uh give it its his own meaning right he's right. not tied to mm. the meaning that the bible presents i can give it my own meaning right 
Um, I can't say that I've listened to a huge amount of Andy Stanley, but uh, I definitely listened to his um, uh, sermon back in the day in regards to unhitching the Old Testament. I listened to his appearance on the uh, on uh, Leighton Flowers show, actually. Um, oh, that's right. I forgot about yeah. that. I, so I, I've, I think I've heard enough to, to gather that he doesn't really preach repentance, right? He doesn't preach God's no. demand on the sinner. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. But that's not the sense I've gotten from anything that I've uh, watched, right? You know, resurrection, devoid of the rest of Christian content, doesn't force you to preach repentance. It doesn't force you to have to uh, give people hard truths. Like the person that comes to him and says like, oh yeah, the Bible, um, the Bible, that's great. But what about my marriage that's failing, right? It doesn't force him to then preach like, well, uh, we can pray that your marriage would fail, but ultimately whether or not your marriage uh, fails or not, the glory goes to God and you need to, you need to remain in that, right? Mm -hmm. Like, because like bad things will happen to you. God is not obligated um, to give you only good in this life, right? But God is good. And we know that these things are for our good ultimately and for his glory, right? Um, that's a hard truth. And some people will walk away from it. But yep. It's something that you have to, to present. And um, if, if you're angry with God uh, because he hasn't given you what you feel you deserve, that's sin, right? Ultimately, yeah. it's, it's covetousness. <laughs> it's like, I deserve this, right? Um, so a resurrection devoid of that. And it's interesting, Paul, Paul preaches about repentance in this, this very chapter, right? But regardless yep. of whether that's specifically going through his mind or not, whatever, at the very least, when you detach the resurrection from the Bible, mm -hmm. you then get to implant your own significance on the resurrection, yes. right? Yep. And um, that gives you that that gives you a lot of freedom. Whereas I am constrained by what God said. No, the resurrection proves exactly what the Bible says that it proves. Yep. Um, so we can't and we shouldn't detach the resurrection. Why is my speculation any better than anybody else's at that point about what the significance of the resurrection is? It's not. Um, but I have a sure word of God, a sure word from God that I know what it means, what its significance is. And uh, I can, I can stay in that. Amen. Amen. Yeah. If we don't have the scriptures as our authority, then we really don't have any grounds for knowing those special things about, uh, about God. We can only know so much through what he's revealed in nature and we need special revelation for salvation. We need those things for understanding who God is, who Christ is, um, in those fine necessary details. So, yeah, this is why this is such an important discussion, because it undermines every single thing that we believe as Christians. Um, if we get rid of that foundation, then we don't have any reason to believe uh, anything we claim, because it all comes from the scriptures, ultimately, ultimately from God breathing the scriptures out. But this is what God has given us so that we can know uh, who he is uh, fully and understand his gospel. So it, it's very, very important. This is what makes people like Andy Stanley so dangerous is you look at all those people in the audience. There's a lot of people there and a lot of people yeah. watching online, you know, and they're all soaking in this stuff. And if they're not being discerning, uh, they're going to fall prey to these things. Um, so we we have to see this as our as as absolutely crucial and very 
important that we see the scriptures as our authority in our faith and practice, our ultimate authority in faith and practice, or we're going to be in trouble. All right. Well, thank you for joining us today, everybody. We made it through that video. Um, I wasn't sure if we were going to be able to, but we did. Um, but thank you for joining us today. Have a great weekend and Lord say tomorrow and we will Lord willing be back next week. Take care.